In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadir Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded then of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about next week on, um, I think it's on Monday's show. It takes me a second to find it here. Um, it's the, I believe it's The Secret of Words. And I'm very excited to read this book because uh, The Secret of Words is by Noam Chomsky and Andrea Moro. Uh, Noam Chomsky is one of the, I think, most influential thinkers of the past generation or 56 years so looking forward to this new book that he has released with a longtime collaborator Andrea Moro related to words he of course initially made a lot of impact related to language and the way the brain might be wired to learn language so looking forward to reading this and sharing it with you next week the secret of words by Noam Chomsky and Andrea Moro let's get to the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about today it is the neuroscience of you how every brain is different and how to understand yours by Chantel Pratt the neuroscience of you and um, if you've listened to the show you know I've covered many neuroscience books I'm very fascinated by them find them very interesting and often you see a lot of um, similar themes come up which would make sense I was actually talking to a friend and she joked how I'm sure Phineas Gage will be in this book because almost always is there's a case of Phineas Gage where a metal rod went through his head essentially went through his eye socket and flew out the other side he survived um, but his personality changed a lot and so yes lo and behold it was an introduction of this book but Chantel Pratt was sharing how it was fascinating to her that it seemed that even though he survived, he could do some things. He did change a bit. His personality did change. And people would say he's not the same uh, gauge. He's not the same person he was before. And that was interesting to her is that how, because he had this damage to his brain, it clearly changed who he was. So it would lead us to believe that our brains make us who we are in all aspects of it. Our brain makes our mind and our brain uh, makes our thoughts, behaviors, everything that we do. And one thing I'll definitely have to make a note of related to this book was that it was very, very funny. And what I thought was interesting, if you read this book, and I hope you will, uh, the book is about the neuroscience of you, how we are all unique in the cliche way. Every brain is a snowflake. It's different from every other brain in the world. Even your own brain is different in each moment than it was in every other brain because of plasticity and because of how every instance and every encounter every moment that we have information and interactions it affects our brains and so um, what I thought was interesting is if you read this book you definitely get a sense that Chantel Pratt writes it in her own way that's similar to other books in some ways related to people who are in academia but definitely has her own flair her own sense of humor 
Um, a lot of times she uses the footnotes to make certain jokes that, uh, are, so I'd recommend you look at the footnotes. If you read the book, they're right there on the page, um, but also the jokes are, are throughout the book. So you feel this sense of humor. She talks about her own quirkiness and you feel that uh, in the book. And so sometimes I did find myself laughing out loud while reading it. Uh, and the book gets into how we try to understand the human brain. And what's remarkable is how little well, how much we know and how little we know at the same time, in the sense that, especially in the last few decades, with the advancements in imaging techniques that have come about, we've learned a lot more about the brain, but we still are really scratching uh, the surface in understanding how it works, what causes what, what would help be helpful, um, all sorts of things. It really is incredible how complex this uh, organ is um, is that we are, uh, you know, have in our heads that's, that's dealing with so much of, of what we're doing. And so, um, she gets into some of under what we do understand so far about, uh, certain things related to the, the brain. And so this idea that every brain is unique, that theme runs throughout the book because we see that often when people, you know, if you look at cer certain neuroscience papers, books, they'll present, this is what, the brain looks like angry or this is what the brain looks like when it's experiencing sadness or when it's doing this thing or that thing but really what you're usually looking at is lots of statistics and things that are done to make these images but also it's the average of many people so you have for example the average of um, many uh, people who were experiencing anger and what their brains looked like so actually it might not even be that any one particular person's brain looked that way in the scanner, but that when you average them, it looks that way. And that reminds me of some work I've seen by uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett talking about emotions, that at times we say this is anger, this is sadness, this is these different emotions, but really no two people are experiencing the exactly the same. So when we average them out, it could seem like it's telling a story, but it's in some ways a misleading story to say that this is what the brain looks like when it's experiencing different things. Um, but so the chapters of the book go through a variety of things. First, looking at things like lateralization, or a, pair, uh, a chapter called lopsided. And so she gets into some of the um, things we've heard of, like left brain versus right brain that people say. And specialization and lateralization is interesting. Um, she shares how if we try to understand why that might be, that sometimes we want certain parts of the brain to be better at certain things, like certain, let's say one hemisphere versus the other. And so again, it's not that one is better or worse necessarily, or we always want it to be a certain way. But she shares the analogy of, for example, if you have a sports team, a basketball team, and if you have a, a balanced team, the good part is that if anyone, one player gets injured, the team can function fairly well. Whereas you have, if you have a team that's less balanced, and so you have one superstar or two superstars who are really good uh, and much better than other players. That can be good in its own ways because of what they might be able to do. But then you're more susceptible that if there is an injury, you could be in trouble because if you lose one of those star players, your performance will drop considerably as a team. So the brain could be seen the same way that at times it could be good to specialize certain things because those parts of the brain might become better or very good at certain things that can make the functioning better but of course then you are more susceptible to injuries and things of that sort so it's a kind of a uh, evolutionary explanation or plausible explanation to why the brain might be that way 
also talks about uh, different neurotransmitters in a chapter called mixology, things like serotonin and also dopamine and how important that is in understanding how we learn and how we learn things. And so it's fascinating is that in, in every section, we see that it's not that all brains do this. Uh, she shares the different things we observe that some brains process things in this way, some brains experience things in this way, and some will experience them in other ways. And then again, it's not just differences between people, even within yourself. You are always changing. Your brain today is not the same brain you had five years ago. The brain is plastic as neuroplasticity, meaning that it's it's always going to be in a, in a state of flux. That doesn't mean that when I say it's, it changes even moment to moment that it's in this huge way shifting into something completely different, but that on a microscopic level, there are these constant changes that are, are happening to our brain based on what you experience. So even when we look at nature versus nurture, which she brings up in various sections of the book, to my mind, this, my mind, pun intended, this always means that there is some nurture that's going to be involved with practically anything because our brain is impacted by what we experience. So it's hard to think that anything will be purely nature when we look at the brain because of that. So, you know, there's the part on neurotransmitters. And so, again, it's very easy to say, well, dopamine is the pleasure or the seeking chemical, but it's much more complicated than that. And she gets into some of the details of how it relates to things like learning and affecting what you do and choose not to do, which was quite interesting. Uh, also, when we try to understand how the brain works, um, a big part of how we understand it is related to things being in sync. And that's the name of a whole chapter about how, uh, you know, there's this this principle of things that fire, the neurons that fire together, wire together, meaning that when they're in synchronization or they're synchronous firing, they are more likely to be related to each other and connected. And sometimes even we can see that this might be related to how different brain parts communicate. And so this is also an important thing that I've seen more and more that we often think of, well, okay, what part of the brain is functioning, functioning good or bad in, let's say, depression or uh, creativity or whatever it might be. But we often see that it's less about looking at the brain as these completely separate independent parts, but recognizing that a lot of what we experience and a lot of what we observe is related to the interconnectivity of parts of the brain. And so that's something that's important to keep in mind. Um, and so what's also cool about the book is there are a lot of these uh, self-assessments that you can take to see how your particular brain might be for things like being more left or right dominant um, and different things like are you more likely to be uh, reinforced by good things or going away from bad things so care being uh, reinforced by the carrot or the stick so are you more likely to go towards the good or to go away from the bad and that reinforces what you do. So there are these easy to do short assessments that you can do to try to understand your unique brain, because I think there's a few themes in the book. One is that every brain is unique and trying to understand this difference. But then the title of the book, The Neuroscience of You, allows you to try to understand your own brain better as well. So I thought that was cool. And, you know, I took those tests as they were going throughout the book, which, which helps you understand um, yourself better and help you know, some, see some things about myself. Um, there's also some things like looking at curiosity, which 
people can differ on how much they are curious. And so a lot of times we do, I've talked about, and there's some books I've talked about that were related to curiosity of it being a good thing. And I think in a lot of ways it can be a, a good thing, especially, let's say, to intellectually be curious and try to learn things and understand things. And I could also be saying that because I think I am that way. So I see it positively. But looking at the costs and benefits of that, that, yes, it could be good to be curious and to explore and to learn more. But of course, curiosity, there's that saying, curiosity killed the cat, that at times if you keep opening doors or going down certain paths, you can, one, waste time, so it can be uh, opportunity costs there, but also you can find danger or do things that are hurtful or dangerous to you. So this, again, goes along that theme that it's not that there's one right way of being, one better way of being, that we all are different. And she encourages you to, rather than think, oh, I shouldn't be this way and how can I change it, more try to understand yourself why you might be the way that you are and first just understand it and then also understand the benefits of it and the, how that can be helpful to you. So although I'm talking about plasticity and that we can change and things will and can change, first of all, there's generally limits within that. It doesn't mean that if you're completely introverted, you can become completely extroverted. But the other part is maybe you don't need to be. And if you are very introverted, you can understand and embrace that rather than think, oh, no, I need to be this this other way and I have to change. So I like that that's a theme throughout the book as well, is that we're all different, we're all unique, and try to understand yourself, but also try to accept yourself rather than think you have to change it to become something, that there's some ideal way, some ideal brain that we all should be striving towards. And so I really liked that theme in the book uh, as well that we really can try to understand ourselves better and accept ourselves rather than think we have to change ourselves. So I really enjoyed the book, and I think what I want to do in the next um, section of the show, next segment, is to talk about the last chapter and some related thoughts of my own related to how we connect to others, but also related to how we see reality and how it feels so real and like it's the only way we could see things, but how... Uh, it can be helpful for us to have the humility to recognize that not everyone sees things the way that we do. And the reality we see that looks to us like it can't be any other way is just a interpretation or understanding of what's out there. So we'll, we'll, I'll talk about that after the break. Again, the book is The Neuroscience of You by Chantel Pratt. We'll be right back. back. I wanted to continue talking about the book, The Neuroscience of You by Chantel Pratt. And the last chapter is titled Connect. And uh, as you kind of tease it up throughout the book that, you know, trying to understand, well, it's so hard to even understand our own brains and our own minds, how hard it is and must be to then try to understand the mind of someone else, especially when we recognize that our brains are each unique and have ways of doing things. What was interesting is when they did, she shares some research that people have done looking at people who become friends. For example, I think one of the studies was in a, a graduate program and looking at people who were friends or who had mutual friends. And they found that on certain characteristics, the brains of people that were more similar were more likely to be friends, which is quite interesting. So maybe we intuitively already know that, 
that people tend to become friends with people that are more similar to them, but it's interesting to see it at the brain level that there are some patterns we can see and recognize that certain people or, or people tend to be drawn towards people with a similar type of brain in certain ways um, rather than to those who are different from them. But this uh, experience we have or as human beings we're interacting with one another, I think it's one of those things that as she talks about it, we can see how difficult it is and then that's what makes it so amazing how well we do it in a way. So we make mistakes, but we also do it quite well, which I think is quite amazing and how automatically we can do that. For, for most people, we can try to understand each other fairly well. Again, we can get it terribly wrong often and we aren't going to be probably completely accurate ever, but we can do a good enough job that of course we interact and create relationships and collaborate and do all sorts of things. So it, it is pretty cool. And she shares how there are a variety of brain or ways the brain can do this. One is things like mirror neurons. So there's a way that we really literally can feel what others are feeling. We see someone grab a cup. And so because it triggers these neuro, mirror neurons inside of, inside of our heads, we kind of feel what that's like or going through other experiences as well. And then also sometimes we have to think a little bit more. And she shares this term that others have come up with mind mindedness when we're thinking about the minds of others or trying to understand others. And, and especially I think that term comes up looking at parents with their, their babies, parents with their children. But we can try to think our ways through it a bit too to try to understand others. Um, but again, we can do it really well, but also really miss the mark often as well. And so what can be very relevant to this book when it says the neuroscience of you and every brain is unique is that we recognize we are creating our version of reality. And of course, we hope it's a, a sh enough of a shared reality that we can interact with others. It's not that everyone has these completely different in every way type of reality, but we do have to recognize that our brain it creates a version of reality, but it doesn't mean it's the only truth or the only one out there. And she mentions The Dress, which was also in a book a few weeks ago, I think, How Minds Change, uh, about how there was that, that whole internet sensation, I believe it was 2015, uh, several years ago, that there was this dress, a photograph, and some people saw the dress as white and gold, and some people saw it as black and blue. And what was fascinating about this situation. And I think what it illustrated so well, of course, it became, you know, this funny thing went viral and people, you know, turn, you know, they're into camps and, and you'd see people write things like, I can't believe anyone sees it as white and gold. It's obviously black and blue. What are you crazy? What's wrong with you? And because it was something trivial, like the dress, I think that also allowed for us to look at it and laugh at the situation. But it, makes us realize this is the same thing we do with more important topics like political issues and different things where we see the reality a certain way and we just can't even imagine someone seeing it differently. So for me, I do see the dress as white and gold and it's very hard for me. I can kind of get it because I've read about it and, and you know seen things to try to understand even what might be going on that because of your life experiences it might uh, affect how you see the lighting in that situation. And because of that, we make certain discounts and things that we do to try to assess what the color actually is of the object we're looking at. And we do all of that automatically. So I can get that, but it's hard for me to, I can't see it black and uh, blue. 
I see it white and gold and I just can't actually see it. But what I can try to do is recognize that I see it as white and gold, but I can understand that others equally see it the way they do as black and blue, as automatically as I do, as uh, without thinking, without trying, that's just how it is. And they can't see it as white and gold. And this can be very important to have this humility to recognize that what we see as reality is at some level our interpretation, our natural reaction to it. So we can't control how we see it, but we can control how we respond to it and how certain we are that this is the only way to see things. And so you see this with political debates, which even I could say it's interesting, they're even less of uh, you know, when you look at perception, I mean, you just see it as white and gold or black and blue, whereas there's some level of thinking that tends to go into political situations, although what we see is that it's much more of an emotional reaction. So in that way, I guess it is similar. We just have a reaction to it. Um, but people are just so sure. You look at look at any issue that comes up and then see what people write on social media. And they're so certain that this is the only way to see it. And how could you see it any other way? You know, so if we just try to... Uh, use this dress analogy so it's like abortion some people are like it's black and blue how can you see it any other way and some people say it's white and gold and how can you see it the other way but of course here it's pro-life and pro-choice but it's the same kind of a thing that is going on that we can't imagine someone seeing it another way they're idiotic they're stupid they're they are immoral they're bad people rather than recognizing okay maybe they have a different brain than me they have a different brain to begin with, let's say, and then also different experiences shape them a certain way. You know, you experience this. I've seen it so many times where you uh, talk to someone, and now especially even more than before, when they bring up politi a political issue or a political candidate or, or figure, they talk about them in this very matter-of-fact way. So, so-and-so, oh yeah, she's so horrible, or she's so good. And you can feel for many people, most people, the way they talk about them, it's like, well, of course you agree with me, because how could you see it any other way? And we recognize, or I try to recognize that it's, of course, obvious to them to see it that way, because if they've been exposed to a certain type of information, if they keep saying, seeing good or very, very bad things about this person and only seeing those things, well, they think, well, it's obvious this is all the information on that topic is that this person is, is good or bad. And so they think everyone else must see it that way. And this is unfortunately something we're seeing with the ways things like social media and the proliferation of a variety of ways to get information and media and different things has affected us that we only see what we want to see, what confirms what we see. And, and as a result, we think that that's the only way anyone sees it. Now, related to that, when we look at conversations, something interesting uh, that comes up in the book, and I was talking about curiosity. And so when we're looking at being curious and wanting to, to seek more information, if we're in a state of threat, we're, we're obviously less likely to want to get new information. We want to stay comfortable, or let's whatever it is, or try something new, right? If you're afraid of that, what what is outside is scary, you're going to stay inside if you're feeling unsafe. And so similarly, when we are having debates and discussions, and if you attack one another, and that's usually what we see, uh, the type of discourse that happens, whether it's online or in person, is just very attacking and making the other person try to look bad and owning and dunking on them and making them feel stupid is the goal and winning. Well, of course, people are not going to be as open to hearing what you have to say, even to, to having a 
conversation. So if you we make it in an attacking mode, it's something just to be aware of. And I've seen this uh, in in not just political uh, debates of uh, uh, of um, of current times, but even in relationships, families or couples. If you turn it into a yelling match, and it gets very very heated. Both sides are not going to even hear what the other person is saying because we're not going to be open. We're not in that curious mindset to take things in. So if we're trying to tell this is why you have to do this or this is why this is wrong or this is bad, but you're saying it in a very attacking way, we can understand at, at a type of brain level why that's not going to work. It's not going to land because the person is in a not safe, defensive kind of a mindset, not one that is open and receptive. So you're much better off waiting till you both calm down. First of all, so it doesn't escalate further and doesn't get uglier, but also that if you actually want to hear each other, you have to be in a state of mind where you're open to hearing and receiving rather than one where you're just protecting and attacking your opponent in this case, who might even be your loved one. And another thing about this, recognizing how our reality uh, obviously feels so real. It feels like it's the only thing out there, the only show in town, when it comes to things like, you know, let's say race or sexuality, um, where it feels like when you're like, okay, this is just bad, or these people are good or bad, or whatever your beliefs and biases might be, they just seem so real. You're like, no, no, it's not that I'm racist, or I'm sexist, or I'm whatever, prejudiced in this way. It just is the reality. Because whatever we experience feels like it's very real that it's not just a, an opinion or a thought or a side of things. It's going to look like the truth. Again, it's like the dress. It's white and gold or black and blue. It's not, well, maybe it's either or maybe it's both or I see it this way and others see it that way. But we'd be much better off if we recognize that even if something feels so automatic, it doesn't mean it's necessarily true or some kind of capital T truth. For example, uh, money. You know, we can talk about how money is a social construct, and it is. It has value because we all uh, give it value, and we all assume that everyone gives it value, and that way its, it's value is social, socially constructed. And then, of course, there's markets and things which are also related to that. And But to a lot of people, it's like, okay, well, you know, you say it's socially constructed, but when I just see money or someone tells me I'm going to make money or lose money, I just viscerally feel something instantly. It's not like I think about it or I need a social framework to tell me to feel something about it. In that moment, I automatically feel something. But the truth is still it is socially constructed. And it's also very important to keep in mind that when we say something is socially constructed, it doesn't mean it has no value or effect in the world. It absolutely does. Money is literally uh, saving and ending lives and changing lives all the time because of the system that we have. And similarly, when we say that race is socially constructed, it doesn't mean that it's not impacting people. It definitely is. It's having a real effect. And people see it as real and discriminate in real ways based on this socially constructed thing. So the effects of it are very real. But it doesn't mean that it has some absolute truth basis to it that we can say has value. And this is why, again, it's so hard because it feels so intense and real for people that this is something. Same thing with sexuality, that for some people it, it feels so intense that this is wrong to be this way, that this is the only right way to be. And what I think is very interesting with a point like this is looking at how uh, views on things like same-sex marriage have changed in the United States in the past 
few decades alone, we see huge shifts. And nothing has changed in the uh, absolute about what it means for there to be same-sex marriage. That act hasn't changed. But people's opinions clearly have. And their reality or what feels like their reality has changed. So they might not even realize it. And oftentimes we do see this change blindness type of a thing with our own views that you might think, oh, no, I always felt this way about same-sex marriage. But very likely because of the environment, because of the messages you've heard, uh, certain things you've experienced, it has changed. But you might not be aware of that moment to moment because in any moment, your reality is the only reality you can know. So it seems like, well, no, this is it. I always saw it this way. I always saw the dress white and gold. It can't be any other way. And so I really appreciated this part of the book when we understand that every brain is different and unique. And of course, even as I say that, uh, every brain is very, very similar too. And this is something I've always experienced when I, as a therapist, meet individuals that I really do feel like every human being is unique. And I think it's so fascinating to understand them more fully in that uniqueness, while at the same time recognizing there's a common humanity that, that makes all people connected in some way and similar in some way. So our brains are the same way. When we say they're each unique, we're really talking about a lot of the details, but in a lot of ways, they're very, very similar. But nonetheless, those unique aspects of our brains can create these unique realities that are important for us to keep in mind when we interact with others that although we might see something a certain way, it's not some absolute truth. And for them, their truth or reality might be different. What can be good is to have the humility of our own reality and try to understand their reality better so we can actually connect and communicate rather than just fight and prove who's right when really neither of us has the one answer. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller, Radio Hamra. You're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Thanks for calling. Uh, I have been divorced um, recently, and during the process of divorce, uh, I met someone that uh, I started having a talk, talking and then relationship afterwards. And uh, that helped me a lot to get through my divorce process. Um, uh, he, he truly very, you know, mm, respectful, loyal, and um, he understand where I come from and the abusive marriage I had. And um, we went out for mm, like few date nights and I really enjoyed everything. But it uh, it's, uh, the issue here is um, when I get any compliments from him or anything, I cannot trust him. And it's to the point that he now uh, understand it and he continue telling me that, um, oh, I know where you're coming from because you've been uh, abused and this and that. Um, and now it's to the point that, um, uh, like yesterday, he said, um, uh, anything I tell you, you don't believe me, you think I cheat on you, I, um, you don't trust me, and I have to see a therapist to talk about us, about this situation. He's saying and, he is seeing a therapist because of it, or he's saying you need to see a therapist. No, he okay. he will he has his own therapist. Got it. Here. Okay. And uh, since then, we haven't spoke. 
so I don't know if the therapist advised him not to talk to me anymore because I do have a trust issue or I'm trying to see what can help me mm-hmm. to gain the trust back so I can, uh, I mean, I don't want to go to any more drama and any bad relationship anymore. Well, and that's the thing is that in, in order to have a good relationship, we have to risk having a bad relationship. But when we are too hurt from what we just experienced, one, we can feel not ready to get hurt again, and two, it can create an expectation that uh, relationships are going to end in in getting hurt. So, um, although it seems like it was helpful for you to to have this relationship or date him during the divorce, it, it seems like you at least didn't feel ready to trust enough to go deeper than something more on the surface or or short term. Tell me a bit about yourself. How old are you? How long you were married? I mean, you you mentioned that he said you were abused, so want to get into the marriage and what happened there but give me some of that background information before we go uh, forward i prefer not to talk about it um, okay i've been married long enough to um uh, over over 17 years and okay uh, is your is your concern that people would recognize your voice or yes. okay well we don't have to get into the details some of those might help me, you know, to, to give us some context of what's going on. And you don't want to talk about what happened in the marriage? Um, it was basically an abusive marriage, controlling abuse. Okay. And, uh, intimidating. Physical abuse or emotional abuse? Um, Both? Emotional, yeah. Emotional abuse, okay. And, and you said, as far as divorce, you said, are you still in the process of divorce so it's not finalized yet? It's not finalized yet. Okay. And then are there any children in the picture? Um, yes. Okay. Um, I, I can, I even hesitate to ask certain questions because I'm not sure what you want to answer or not answer. And we don't necessarily have to get into those specifics of things like the age of the children. Of course, it has impact on, on how you might deal with certain things, but not necessarily specifically related to, um, this trust issue. So, and how long ago did you separate from your soon, you know, soon to be ex-husband? Uh, uh, about six months ago. Okay, so it, that's still fairly new. When you know when you have seventeen years, and I don't know if the whole marriage was this way, of of something, um, a few months away from that, it, it's not likely that you're going to feel totally safe yet. And you know the book I was talking about today talks about this aspect of our brains where. First of all, it's a predicting type of a machine, our brain, and then also it's going to be impacted by what we experience, what it's going to predict next. So unfortunately, your brain is on high alert right now to not get hurt again and has this prediction and expectation that uh, a man that you're going to be dating and get romantically involved with is going to hurt you. When you start to feel good and feel those feelings, it's going to make you think, "Uh uh-oh, watch out, this is where you get hurt. And so that's part of this trust issue is this fear of getting hurt and this expectation of getting hurt. Now, a few things come to mind. One is that it could be that you need some more time, that it was too soon after uh, you know, this relationship ended and how long it was, that you might need some more time to really feel ready. Uh, but one thing to keep in mind is that you likely won't ever feel completely ready because it's always going to be a little bit scary. Even if you haven't been hurt the way you have, 
everyone experiences some fear of intimacy because when we get close, we can get more hurt in a variety of ways. But if you've gone through uh, some bad experiences, that can be even stronger. So that's just something I want you to be mindful of and aware of is that it probably will always feel a little bit risky. But the thing is when we are building trust and we want to overcome trust issues, we obviously don't give someone our full trust from the beginning that we get closer to them and they earn that trust. It's earned piece by piece. The, the analogy I sometimes use is like, it's like you are lending someone money. You don't just lend them, let's say $10,000 at first, you might lend them $5 and see how they respond to that, then 10, then 20, and then slowly that builds. Similarly, we give someone more and more of our heart or our feelings and, and then see how they respond. And then, you know, we, we decide what to build with them. Now, he mentioned he's going to therapy. Have Have you been in your own therapy to deal with everything you're going through? Yes. Okay. How is that going? Yeah, uh, it's going pretty well. Um, okay. But uh, my concern was um, at this point, should I um, just let this thing, this relationship go, or should I call and uh, since he has not called, or what's best to do in this situation? Well, I mean, it's it's uh, rarely do I say exactly do this because that's something you have to figure out what you want to do. What What is your first, what is your gut telling you to do about this? Um, I was trying just to prove that it's not like a, I don't trust 100%, but it takes time for me to um, mm-hmm. gain the trust. Sure. Okay. So you've already told him that? Yes. Okay. Now, can you tell me a bit of what happens, like, when you say you don't believe it or if you're afraid of him you know being unfaithful or things like that what's happening like yeah. it's just uh, they just it's just a temporary they just want to uh, get what they want and they will leave me this is how i feel about yeah. men right now right and i mean you said that then men because it's interesting i said what you know between you and him and you went to they which shows that there's this feeling of this generalization of that all men yeah. are going to be like you know what you experience and maybe other things you know, you've heard or seen, uh, and that's what happens when we have a really bad experience. We we generalize that to protect ourselves. So it's like, well, all men are going to hurt me, so I, I have to protect myself by not getting close. And so that's where you have this uh, challenge, where on one hand you want to get close and feel that closeness and the good that comes from that, but you're also very afraid of that same thing because by getting close you can get hurt. So I, I mean, the way you seem to be talking about it. It feels like the wounds are, are a bit open still, so it might be hard for you to actually enter into a relationship. Yes, it would have to be very slow, but it could be that it's soon. Um, in your own therapy, are, I'm sure you're explore, exploring this issue. What's coming up there? Um, uh, I heard the same thing that you said, um, that uh, I should not rush it and I have to take time. <laughs> Well, and something you might be looking for, you know, from the therapist or now from me is because you're so uncertain and you're so afraid to get hurt, but you also want it so bad. And, you know, it's like the in both ways, it feels like a lot. It's like you want something so much, um, but on the other hand, you know, you're afraid uh, of being hurt. And I think we lost the caller, but I'll I'll just share some thoughts in case uh, she's listening. Uh, but, you know, because you've been in hurt so much, but on the other hand, you want something so much and you're afraid to get hurt, there's uncertainty. And at times when we're really, really uncertain about things where the stakes feel high, 
we're hoping someone has an answer for us that can tell us that if you go forward, you know, it, you won't get hurt or it's going to work out or no, you definitely should not. Um, and as I said, the sense I got from how you were talking about it and the length of time of the marriage and the length of time since the separation and going through the divorce, it, it could be that you're not ready yet, uh, which can be difficult because you probably are looking for some kind of support through this. And you mentioned this individual was, was giving you that and providing you that. But it could be that for a romantic relationship and what that would entail, you might not be ready yet. But I hope you'll continue to go to therapy and, and work on that processing, exploring. And the thing is, sometimes when we say, you know, go to therapy, as I just mentioned, it could seem like you're going to go to therapy and completely heal everything totally and have no issue related to trust. And then you're going to get back out there and, and have no, you know, trust issues at all. Where the reality is that, yes, sometimes the wounds are too fresh and we do need some time to heal and to work on on things before we can feel more ready. But when it comes time to trust again, we should expect that it's going to be challenging for you, that it won't just be, okay, now I'm, you know, as if it was none of the stuff ever happened to me. It will almost always feel different to experience it actually in reality. You might think about it and feel so much better, but when we experience it, it's hard for those old feelings not to come back initially. Because again, when you start to feel good with someone, you're going to have this voice in your head and these feelings that come up saying, uh-oh, this is where it gets dangerous. This is where you have to be careful that if you trust them, they're going to hurt you or what they say isn't true. And we didn't get into the details of what you experienced in your marriage, but especially whatever you experienced there likely will come up again as those fears. So I hope you will continue to to work in therapy, uh, on you know, give yourself time, do whatever you need to get support and to take care of yourself, and then see when you do feel ready, and then take those risks because it will feel risky. And the reality is, relationships are always with risk. As I mentioned, you have to risk being in a bad relationship in order to have a good relationship. You have to risk your heart being broken if you want your heart to be cherished by someone and to be loved by someone which can be very, very scary, but that's just the risks that we have to take. You know, anything we do, we have to recognize that we're accepting risks. You want to start a business, it can it can go really bad. You can lose money and it can fail. You want to go to school, you can not do well there. You want to start a relationship, you can get hurt in a variety of ways. And we have to accept that we're taking those risks, but with the intention that we think that there is a possibility for some reward some experience, some relationship that makes it worth that risk. So uh, that's uh, the challenge where you are at. I hope if you are listening that some of this um, will, will get to you. But if not, yeah, you're not the only one to go through something like this. So for others listening and for all of us, it's recognizing we always are dealing with this dilemma of wanting to be close and having that experience, but recognizing there are anxieties that come up when we get close. We all want to be seen because that can feel so beautiful if someone sees us and loves us as we truly are. But the more vulnerable and open we are, the more deeply we can get hurt if we are rejected or not accepted in some way. So those are the risks that we have to accept are part of life. They aren't easy, but wish you the best in, in navigating all of that. And good luck to you. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310 We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello? Hi, thanks for calling. Hi, thank you for answering. <coughs> sure. Sorry. My question <coughs> is regarding to my daughter. She's three years old and has recently changed her preschool. Okay. But uh, every morning when she wants to go there, she says that she doesn't want to go there. She wants to go to the previous one. And she doesn't want to go to preschool because she misses me and her daddy. And um, even today, she didn't let me to let me leave at preschool. She grabbed my hand. And it was very difficult, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I need to add something also that this new preschool, uh, I also saw and um, felt also a little bit there. And I heard it from other parents that in this new preschool, they uh, they take care of the children and uh, they are not bad people, but they are not getting involved so emotionally uh, with, with, uh, with children. Uh, for example, the previous uh, preschool, the teachers were very kind, friendly. They were like a family. My daughter even didn't want to um, stay home and uh, she didn't have even time to say goodbye to us. She was super happy there. But uh, now it's uh, the situation is like what I just mm-hmm. said and um, I want to know what is uh, what can we do to make it easier for her. She didn't have any problem uh, when she started with preschool in the first school. Okay. But now um, it's a little bit complicated. Yeah, I mean, from what you're describing, we can completely understand where she's coming from. That first of all, just changing the preschool is not easy, and then saying bye to mom and dad is not, you know, something really nice, a, a nice to experience. And and what's really important is, you know, we as adults, we might think, oh, you know, she's a kid, she cares about how they make her feel there. Um, but even as adults, if you have a job and you don't feel good around your coworkers and your boss, you don't want to go there. You know, you don't. It's it's more about the relationships and how you feel than just the work. And especially for a child at any age, but especially in preschool, I would say really that emotional type of feeling is the most important thing, much more than any kind of curriculum or education. And sometimes it's part of the curriculum, the way teachers interact with the children. But, you know, to me, like learning things, the way we sometimes think of it, that school is about learning things, especially at that age, at any age, but especially three years old, really the only thing I would care about is, you know, how does she feel? And like, you know, does she get to play with other kids and play there? Um, And if that's not in a a high level, that's really important. Now, if you can let me know what happened that you switched her preschool. Uh, Well, uh, the new preschool is uh, only some meters away from us. Okay. Close to us. So that's why we did that. Okay. Now, I I don't know the logistics of your family situation, but I would say that this is really worth a lot, um, how good she feels at the school. So uh, how far was the other school, and is it possible that she would go there? Well, actually, it, that was not so far, but uh, we live in a small town that uh, there are not so many buses that uh, goes uh, 
around that I can go and get her, and uh, I I don't have a driver license in this country, uh, and I'm uh, trying to get it, but um, that's why it was very complicated for mm-hmm. my husband to uh, come and get her or take her in his lunchtime um, in the middle of the work, and so that's why we changed it. Okay. Yeah, and that's I'm yeah. Guilty because it's because of me. Well, I, I definitely don't want to make to add to that guilt to make you feel guilty about that. You know, it, as I said, it's clear that that school seems to be the better one for your daughter. But I understand that every family has to deal with their own, you know, logistics and their own situ- life situation to see what works. But really, I would say, you know, it, it could feel like, well, there's there's a preschool here, there's a preschool there. She should just be happy at this one, or we can make this one work. It's like we say, well, there's a restaurant there, there's a restaurant here. But this is, you know, much deeper than that and and how she experiences it. So uh, maybe you already have this mindset too, but if we, there's a way to make it work at that other school, I think that would be good if she feels good there. And if you're saying, you know, this school, it seems like the teachers are not so warm or so emotionally connected to the children against me that's I, I don't know what else they're doing there other than that you know or that's how i would base how you pick a preschool is how they're making the children feel and the comfort and then the play what kind of play and how they facilitate that but that's really it you know sometimes we think of school as learning things uh and it's less that i think even at an older age but especially at that age where i would say at three i'm you know i care that if she learns the letters or not or numbers that's not really of concern to me it's how she's feeling there now how long has she been going to this new preschool almost a month almost a month okay so it's still relatively new and and, you know i don't want to uh create this like where she's going back and forth or that you talk to her about it until you can make that decision What's your thinking? Is it we can't go back to that? Is it um, we have to, you know, in, in that case, we have to just make this the best for this situation? Or is that still a possibility to take her back to that old school? Well, uh, I don't know, really, because here the rules and laws are a little bit uh, different because everything connected to, um, um, how can I it here is not like that we choose exactly when and which preschool the kid goes we just uh, apply for preschool and um, then um, when uh, then we are in in the queue and uh, which one is available we go there and uh, we actually have been in the queue for the, the nearest one uh, for almost one year mm-hmm. and then we could they just told us that now we have a place there and we can uh, change. So I don't know if there is any place in the previous one for us or not. I'm not sure about it. I was even thinking about it that maybe it's better that she goes back to her previous school. Even we as adults, when we were meeting the teachers, we liked them a lot. They were very understanding. It it, it was very perfect with the teachers. Mm But here, because it's very uh, interesting, because I started working working also as substitute teachers, as as a substitute teacher in preschools, and, and I go to different preschools in the area uh, whenever they need. So I have been to this school in uh, summertime last summer, and I uh, noticed that uh, some of the teachers there they are just uh, they're like just. Uh, just watching kids not to get hurt or fall mm-hmm. or 
uh, as I said, they are not emotionally involved. And my daughter is very sensitive about these things. Um, so, and she's the only child, so she receives a lot of attention home and suddenly goes there and um, yeah. I think it's difficult. So, uh, what, what do you think? Can we do something about this new school or... Uh, it is what it is. I don't know. Well, we obviously we can't change the the school. I mean, you know, uh, you maybe talk to the people there or something, but you know, the likelihood you can change how the teachers are being uh, with your daughter and the other students, probably not much you can do there. You know, you could communicate, let them know what she needs, that I, you know, she needs, she really does thrive or benefit from more attention. But if it's the way their way of doing things, and that's just how they are with all the kids, I don't know if it'll make a difference. So there's that option. Uh, the other thing is, you know, still I would say if you can go back to the old school, I get, I get what you're saying. I don't know the, the system in, in the country you're in exactly, but regardless, it does... Everyone needs to stand in the queue here. I see. Okay. Yeah. So maybe things are a little bit more... It's not easy to switch back and forth. You were, uh, understandably, that you said this school is so close to you that you were in a line for a year or waiting for a year, and you finally got it, but unfortunately, it seems like it was not as good as at other the, the previous school. So... You know, when what I would say is when if we're she's staying at this school, yeah, can you talk to the school and and see if there's anything that can be done there? I wouldn't put too much emphasis on that because the likelihood you can change how the school does things is not so high. Um, but looking at how you interact with your daughter, uh, you know, it's one of these things where it's challenging because we don't want to just say yes to whatever she's saying. Um, but we also want to make sure we, we give her the sense that she's being understood. So what I, the way we sometimes phrase this is that you can say no to the request or the behavior, but yes to the feeling. So she says, I don't want to go to school. It's not that you just say you have to go to school. We don't have a conversation. You can have a conversation with her and show her that I understand, you know, maybe you don't like going here as much or you miss mommy and daddy. We miss you too. And we can't wait to see you and then see how can you support her towards going to the school. So this same type of thing happens with kids who are nervous about going to play or going to a birthday party that they might say no at first, especially, you know, you're saying she's a little bit more sensitive, but also the other school was so much nicer and now this one doesn't feel so good. So we can understand where she's coming from completely. So, you you know, you talk to her and let her know, um, you know, you understand how she feels, you care about how she feels. But, you know, we go to school every day. How, what do you think we can do to make it a little bit better? You know, so you work with her. Now, I mean, if she's really, really unhappy there, we, we want to value that. I know changing the schools is is not easy, but I wouldn't want you to, you know, completely, uh, if, if she's so unhappy, force her there. But we want to work with how can we get her there to see what's her experience like over some time. Uh, the way you're saying it, changing the schools is fairly inflexible. So how can we get her to feel a little bit better? Let's talk to her let's soothe her yes go ahead like how long well i what do you mean how long um so if we need to give her some time to get used to the new school yeah well how I, long? I mean I'm, I'm i don't know what your options are if you tell me we can take her back to the old school tomorrow i'd say well why you know it seems like that would make sense but you're saying you can't so i don't know when you ask me how long i also have to you know we're looking at what is possible if it's possible for, to go back, I would say go back. But if it's not, we're trying to make the best of what you're telling me is a situation we can't change. 
Uh, I have to say this also that uh, when she is there and I go to get her, she I see that she is happy and she's playing. Yeah. I think that's and not so, like she. Yeah, and and that's another thing that you know um, you're saying. I think what's surprising for you is you're saying she didn't have a hard time transitioning to preschool, but now she's having a hard time. Very often, you know, the thought of going there or getting there might make her anxious, and that's what I mean. The same thing happens with parents. They say, you know, every time my child has a birthday party, they say they don't want to go, but then once they're there, they have so much fun and they come back so happy. And I see them playing, and then the next week, the same thing happens. It's some other kid's birthday party, and again, they say I don't want to go. So this is where we want to even, you know, when we when she's home from school. Oh, did you have fun? What did you do that was fun? What did you know? Who did you play with? Oh, that's really good. And then so the next morning. If she's saying no again, so we've we we talk with her. We don't say no, you have to go, or say yes, just stay home. But we talk. Okay, yeah, I know you're. Maybe you get a little bit nervous to go there, or you know you. If if she brings up the old school, you can bring it up. Yeah, I know you liked going there, and you know now we go to this school, and then walk her through. Remember when you were playing with this friend, and that was kind of fun. Maybe you can do that again today. And so you just say some supportive, encouraging things to make her feel better about going it doesn't mean it's going to make it completely easy but might make it easier for her to go um i think what you also have to be aware of is this guilt that you're talking about because then that's going to affect how you interact with her it in a way will make you almost put a pressure on her to be happier because when you see she's unhappy you take that as oh i'm responsible for her unhappiness or i'm responsible that she doesn't like the school that she goes to so i hope you can ease that guilt on yourself to not be so hard on yourself for your own benefit but also for her benefit because you're going to make her feel bad if she's not happy there because you want her to be okay so i hope you can look at that part too that you have to on your own time not through her deal with that guilt um but with her we want to try to encourage her and that's good that you're saying when she's there she's having a good time but just getting her there is tough and so Oftentimes when people have separation anxiety or have some type of anxiety about doing something, once they're there, they're okay, but getting there can be tough. And so that's going to be the challenge. And that could get easier. You're saying it's only been a month. That might get easier over time if we encourage her. She might get more comfortable with the teachers, even if they are not as warm as the teachers at the previous school. So she might get more comfortable, make better relationships with the other kids there. And so she might open up and warm up to it more where the mornings won't be as difficult. But we we have to understand that this is a difficult thing for her, going from a school she really, really liked and was happy at to a new school that she's not as happy with. Any change, even if it was to a school that was better, would take some time. Now here, when it's slightly less warm, we can understand it's even harder for her. So, but uh, but your suggestion is like if uh, we can... Take her, uh, we can put her to her previous school uh, is the best option. Well, based on what you told me, that that school is so much, if it's so different, if you, re- if you yourself see that they're not that different, then we could see this is just a transition. But if you're saying it's very different and she was so much happier and emotionally the teachers were so much more involved and engaged, it does seem like it's beneficial. But this is where I, like I said, I, I, I want you to look at your life because if you tell me taking her to that other school will make our life so much more stressful, well, then when you come home, you're going to both be more stressed and that's going to affect her 
anyway. So this is why these things to me are not so black and white to say, oh, if that school is better, you should definitely go there because I don't know the logistics of how it's going to affect your life. So you have to look at your life and see if we take her to that school, how much better is it than this school and how much is it going to affect our life, making it more difficult or challenging or stressful to get her there compared to the school that's at home. Just like when a baby is born, especially in the United States, we don't get things like maternity leave, paternity leave, like you might get in Sweden and other countries. So of course we want the parents to be home with the kids, but if financially that means they're not going to be able to afford anything, that's the ideal, but that's not the ideal for that family. They have to find a way to survive. So that's why I'm saying you have to look at the options of how different do you feel like the schools are, and maybe you don't know yet because it's it's only been a month at this new school and how different is it for you as a family to take her that to that school if it's even an option because if it's very very stressful for you or it's creating a lot of stress for your husband uh, and you then that's not going to be better for you so i'm sure you would want a more clear answer that definitely she should go to this school or that school but it's not easy for me to give you that kind of an answer because of the various the variables that are involved I understand that. It, the, something was very funny was uh, when she just started with the school and uh, I asked her about her teachers and she said, I don't like the teachers here. They are very old. And I was thinking, how come a three-year-old understand these things? And she is actually right. But uh, it was very funny for me yeah. how they can understand this much. Well, even yeah. Now, are they much older, or do you think she meant like they're kind of more, let's say, boring or cold, and like that that feels like they're older, like they're kind of not as alive? Maybe, maybe, maybe she meant like that. And uh, my last question is, um, I don't think if going directly to the teachers and talk to them is effective, but mm. there is also an option that... Uh, we contact the principal and say about the situation and what we saw and felt and uh, what because nothing illegal happened. I, I'm saying yeah. that they are not bad people, but they are just doing their job every day and go home. Yeah. Something. And uh, because nothing illegal happened, so it's also easy. But yeah. uh, maybe they maybe they just talk. The principal will talk to the teachers. But do you think if it is something effective or no? I mean, I don't, yeah, you know, I know I even said it myself of just as a possibility, but the more I, I think of it and hearing you say it, it doesn't seem likely. Like you said, if it's something like, let's say, they play a certain game that scared your daughter and, you know, you say, you know, could we not play this game because it scares her? But if it's like this overall feeling that the teachers are less warm, that's such a, you know, more of like a deeper thing that I don't know if it's going to make a difference to say, the, you know, the teachers here are less warm and, and maybe, you know, but it's hard for you to know. I know you see them for a few minutes, so it's hard for you to really probably say, okay, the teachers need to be more this way or more that I'm way, you know, weeks, sorry, actually. I have been working in that. Oh, okay. For two weeks. Oh, in that preschool. Okay. Well, yeah. You know, I mean, well, if you're, you mean working as a volunteer or you're actually, that's your place of work now. Uh, I was a, a substitute, substitute teacher okay. in summer, summer preschool. Okay. There, the two uh, two uh, teachers from that uh, preschool was working there, and mm -hmm. the rest uh, were coming from other preschools. So I, I met see. a lot of 
teachers and babysitters from different uh, preschools here in the town. So mm-hmm. that's why I understood that what's happening. And when I compare, then I see that, okay, this preschool mm-hmm. that my daughter is going probably is the worst one. Okay, about yeah. Which is yeah. not, yeah, I'm sure you weren't happy to see that. I, again, it's still going to be tough. Like, what would you say, you know, to the principal, the teacher should be more, what would you What would you want to say to the principal if you did talk to them? Exactly what I feel, what I feel and my child feels. I feel um, that uh, they are not as warm and, fr- and friendly as the other school. And my child also doesn't want to go to school every day like before. Well, yeah, but you know, but that part, you know, I, I get it. You could say, I, I think what you're saying makes sense in the in in that it's a good point. But to think that it, by telling them, you know, people are going to change and become warmer or change how they are, it, it's possible. I would make that a very small uh, possibility to have an effect, and might even just make the principal be like, okay, well, this these are the teachers. What do you you know, what can we do? Like we can't change their personalities or something like that. So. It doesn't seem likely that that's going to bring a big change. You can mention your experience in some kind of a way, but to go in there and say, I'm going to change how the school does things or how these teachers act, it's probably very unlikely to make an impact and might, again, just create some uh, conflict that doesn't really lead to anything. So it's it's something, but I wouldn't put a lot of weight or emphasis that I'm going to go and then the teachers are going to be different every day because of the comments that you make. So I, I can understand you wanting to advocate for your child, and I'm not opposed to you having a conversation, but just being aware of, one, it might not go well, that they might not like it, and two, it, it's not likely it's going to make a huge impact from my perspective and what you're what you're saying you'd like to see change. And is it also um, possible that uh, because she just uh, became three years old, uh, has become two years old, so is it possible that she also started with some kind of uh, period of her age that uh, she becomes a little bit picky or she wants to say no to everything. Yeah, I mean, there could be some of that too. And that's why, I mean, it's only been a month, so we can be patient with that part of it also, that, you know, changing schools seems like it's, it's difficult. So give it a little bit of time. I would focus, I mean, look, every day it's still happening. So focusing on making her feel more comfortable at this school as much as you can, listening to her, making her feel understood. And then seeing what you can do to get her more comfortable there and seeing maybe she feels more comfortable. She creates a warmer relationship with classmates and and teachers over time. But, you know, changing preschools usually is difficult, even if it's to a better one or a more warm one, let alone if it's less warm, we can understand it's going to be challenging. So I, I would really focus on making her feel the best you can going there. And then, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens from there. But, you know, any of these changes are going to be tough. And, and we, we're not, I'm not surprised that she doesn't like the change. I can see how it's a surprise from you. It went to her liking preschool, to her disliking preschool. Um, but we'll see if that persists, if it's only been one month. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you so much for Thank you. Nice talking. You have a good day. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello? Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. 
Uh, hello, Dr. Farid. How are you? Good, thanks. It's nice to talk to you. Likewise. Uh, I'm calling you from Germany. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you for the amazing job that you guys are doing as a team. And, of course, your father, especially. And it's amazing. Thank you very much sure, for your effort. You. And we are learning a lot. Thank you so much. Oh, well, I'm calling you. I want to have your guidance about two topics. So maybe you guide me which one should be first. First of all, has to do with my kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other one has to do with mm, some problems that they have in our lifestyle, which I know you're doing something wrong, but I don't know uh, what's writing. So which topic do you think I can talk well, about? Well, I, I don't know what that second, I mean, obviously, I don't know what the first one is about related to your kids. When you say lifestyle, what do you mean? Well, as a family, uh, okay. So, mm, well, um, um, yeah, it's, um, to be honest, it's the situation. I have a twins that they are now two years and a half. Mm-hmm. So, oh, and, um, yeah, I mean, I think we are doing something right in our life. It's basically, I'm doing now half a, half a day. So, like, I'm working after two o'clock every day, and I have to pick up kids at three o'clock. And my husband works full time, of course, so we would, he would reach home like around 20, 21, something like that. And it's just our life, it's just very, very compact. So we basically, we don't really have time together, really have fun. Mm-hmm. So for me, even when I just finish my work, I have to be, I have to search, be really quick if I'm supposed to do any shopping or something in one hour that I have to pick up the kids and I have to pick them up, I have to take them out and then, I have to at the same time think, oh my God, I have to prepare stuff for them. I have to have something fun for them today and then make them busy up tonight, then provide something for them that they eat. And then just to be honest, just around 22, then I have time that my husband would come and that's the time that we are starting to eat something just quickly and the day ends. And at times mm-hmm. it happened for me that because they both are engineers, so the project I'm working on it maybe is I mean, theoretically, I'm working half a day, but basically at times it happens that I have to work at night. So then if the work has remained, I have to start working at night, that I send the data to the colleagues that they can continue the next morning. So this has got really our lifestyle. And Mm -hmm. to be honest, I'm reaching to a point that I think I'm getting really burned out because it's just a stress. And yeah, it could be exceptionally that they plan a kind of holiday, which would be, oh my God, very, I mean, out of all this schedule, if you plan, just you have something, and then of course that because they have small kids, so still you would be really under pressure. It's not really a holiday, mm-hmm. but I really don't know what's wrong. I really don't know seriously what's wrong. Which is just no, we really don't really enjoy it. It's just rush, rush, rush. Yeah, because you have to pay the bill, you have to do this, and at times I see other families that they have tried to reduce their expectation. Of course. Yeah, I mean, in Europe, there are some uh, facilities that's provided for family if they want really high-level stuff, and you say, okay, just, I get the base. But they really spend time with their kids and with each other, and I'm really confused that what do we do wrong right now? Hmm. Well, uh, you know, it, it, it might not be you're doing something wrong, but it could be that you want to make some changes because even not comparing yourself to others, you're not feeling good about your life and the way that it's going and you realize there's some things missing like even yeah you and your husband having time together or or doing things and, and so this is 
a relevant theme like the last caller where it's hard for me to say just do this like spend an hour doing that because you have mm-hmm. to look at your life and, yeah. and what makes sense but but there is something that you know we have to see how can it be and sometimes it's even small pockets it doesn't mean you have to set aside six hours here or four hours here it could be small things that you make part of your schedule that we have to have this part of our routine whether it's you and your husband having some time together or, you know, with the family doing something together. And we have to also look at your realistic challenge. Both of you are working, you're working part-time, your husband full-time, and you have twins who, uh, you know, are toddlers and both need a lot of attention, exactly. you know. Yeah. So yeah. that's also something when we, you know, sometimes we talk about life being in balance, which I think is very, very important. But it could be mm-hmm. also important to realize that sometimes there's things going on in life that make it hard to, to balance it or the balance might not be so... Uh, comfortable or easy, it, it could be challenging. So I think it's important for you to look at what can you do, even if it's carving out mm-hmm. certain times here and there. What do you think you want more of in your life? If you had to look at when you say you feel like you're getting burnt out, well, what would make that better? To be, that's a very good question, Dr. I mean, well, for me, I mean, before that I, um, I, I become pregnant and yeah, we decide to expand the family. It was like, okay, I like my field of study. Yeah, let's go. Let's uh, make career. Yeah, mm-hmm. I wanted to develop myself. But to be honest, from the time I've, I've got kids, my my attitude totally has changed, to be honest. This issue of, I think, turned from mother. And to be honest, for me now, it's like, I wish if I had more time for my kids, I was feeling more happier to, like, I don't know, play with them, take them to different areas, especially now as they are like in the toddler age. So they want different activities, but I feel at times that I don't have that energy. So, hmm. and because I'm really basically finished the time I really want to spend with them because of the stress from the work as well. Uh, and then sometimes I'm just thinking, okay, should I stop working and I really focus now to reach these guys to a stable level? that I really be there for them and can provide them nicely even as a, I don't know, as a family, as a team for this whole package. Uh, even, you know, for my husband, that one of us, like, be full of energy and <laughs> somehow charge the others or this is totally wrong attitude and I have to think, no, uh, maybe later on I regret that, okay, I cannot find the job again or, you know, there are a lot of issues later on that you might hmm. think or how the financial thing is highlighted that if you say, okay, let's we live in a base level and we try to, I mean, how to say, based on what's on the table, and, and then we say, okay, for a while we want to do this, and then maybe at one point then we get a bit more relaxed about the kids. Now then it's a time that I can think about myself again. Well, I mean... But- I would say I would want you to do something that still feels like you're thinking about yourself, even if it means you're, let's say if it's not working, but you choose to do that and feel good about it rather than it feels like you're sacrificing, let's say, for everyone else. And then your life begins again, let's say, once the kids are five or four or whatever it might be. Now, I'm looking at the time and we're, uh, you know, this segment had started a little bit late. So um, we'll go into a commercial break. And then after the break, it'll be the last segment. We can look at what is possible and and i think the reality is of course ideally we can put a hundred percent into all the aspects of life but 
Oftentimes that's not feasible, it's not realistic. So we can look at what possibly you could change. And, and of course, it's going to be you and your husband together coming up with whatever it is, but that you would feel a little bit better because what you're saying is you're getting close to burning out and that's obviously not something that can continue. So let's go to the break and we'll talk afterwards, okay? Perfect, thank you. All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with a caller. Let's go back to them now. Radio Hamro, you're on the air. Hello, Hello Alexa Fire. Thank okay. you very much again for your time. Yes, my pleasure. So did you figure it out while we're on commercial break? <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm joking. Well, but I yes, wanted to see I'm what you did. I'm confused about this issue. Sure, no, I understand. It, well, it does seem like you're, um, yeah, it's not that you're unhappy about one thing and you want to make it that one thing better. You're feeling un seems like unhappy or maybe feeling unfulfilled in some way with how life is going. And you mentioned burning out, and we obviously don't want that. So um, we're, we're trying to figure out what, what you can do to make things better. And like I said, having two young children, life, life is stressful, life is difficult. And you yourself were talking through, well, financially, is this even possible? Uh, you know, let's say if you didn't work, and would that even be the right thing? Um, what do you think you want more of in your life right now? If you could change something today, what would you change today in how things are going? Uh, you mean uh, the family situation, yeah? Well, I mean, for yourself, uh, all of it, but really for yourself, if you're saying you're burning out, this is, and of course, you're going to make a decision, uh, you know, that fits your life. But I mean, what would you like to see realistically change? Well, you know, that's actually a really, really nice question. But if there are two aspects. It's like I I answer it based on the reality, mm-hmm. or I, I answer it based on what I like, because sometimes <laughs> the reality doesn't fit. Sure. For instance, if I know I have to put bread on the table. Yeah, and <laughs> that's why, like, I mean, it could be like fun. I have to do, you sure. know what I mean? Yeah, and I, that's what I, I mean. You're right, and it could be, you know, it could be fun to daydream sometimes of what, you know, life could be like. But yeah, in the realistic sense of what can possibly change, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy or doesn't mean you even have it all figured out. But what do you think you'd like to see change? Is it more time with your husband, more time with your kids, um, you know, more time well, for work? You know, in my case, to be honest, because I'm in technical field, you know, such kind of field is not that, for instance, you're, I don't know, you're a secretary that you have to answer the phone. So the time you say, the work stop it's really stop mm-hmm. when you say bye bye but you know when you are in technical field at times the things would prolong so this thing of that times i might work at night or for instance two nights ago i had to stay working up to three or four in the morning and in the morning i had mm-hmm. to pick up the kids and prepare them at six o'clock so i had to sleep just two three hours at night oh. because i had a workshop the, na- the day after i had to do a presentation or something like that but my boss doesn't care that i'm working basically half a day I have to deliver the results so you know this thing automatically brings kind of a stress no matter what how many hours you are working because it's based on results not based on the it's performance not working hours so mm-hmm. I, sometimes I'm now thinking in the current situation that now I am maybe me and you know I have to admit that 
considering all these things, at times I have a feeling I don't deliver as I used to before, you know, in terms of the quality of the work at times. So that thing gives me stress as well because at times, at the moment that I'm on my computer and I'm working and thinking a lot of stuff that I have to arrange in terms of kids and family, and I'm basically responsible for that because my husband is basically home the day away, and I, he has a lot of stress as well because we both are foreigners in this country, and you know how it is. You have to work hard to keep your job and such other stuff. So anyway, and so at times I'm thinking maybe at the moment as a mother, this field is not any more helpful for me that you continue as an engineer. Maybe if I had a chance, for instance, that I had a break, and then I, I was going in the direction of, for instance, be a teacher, that somehow I am somehow linked to the board of the kids. So indirectly, I can be in their world and I can have some supervision. And then at the same time, I would be more supportive in terms of financially as well, but I'm linking to them as well. I don't know how can I convey my message. Hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm getting a sense of what you're, you're saying. One thing... You know, obviously these things, uh, it's not always so simple, but, you know, the problem is you're working part-time, but you're not working part-time. You know, you're saying your job at times, yeah, it's yeah. not just that, uh, you know, that, that set uh, hours. To be honest, basically it's just availability that if there is a meeting or something, yeah. they don't expect me in the afternoon to be in the meeting. That's the point. Right. But then they might expect you to, you know, uh, perform something or do something. And then you're saying you're mm -hmm. up till three and four yeah. in the morning. So that itself, you know, could be an issue of having a job that if you're, Time is so limited and there's so many things you want to take care of when you have a job that kind of can bleed into the rest of your time. It's going to be pretty tough to then create a kind of structure that you might need. So you might need to have a job that is more structured than the one you currently have. Now, of course, a lot of factors come up. You have to, you know, if you really like your job and it feels fulfilling and exciting for you, that's something. The problem is the way you're feeling right now. You said you're getting burnt out. That's That means you won't enjoy anything. Now, another thing, when you mentioned energy, I don't know if you meant also overall you're feeling differently. Like, have, do you feel like you've changed? Because I was wondering if you were feeling more down or depressed yourself based on how you talked about your life. Mm. Well, if you know, I want to be honest, yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. somehow mm, in that direction too as well. Yeah, that's there too, exactly. And, and so these things, you know, they're, uh, you know, it's not like it's one or the other, it's usually both, and it's kind of like chicken or the egg. If you're feeling more depressed, it's harder to do things and you feel more burned out, but also the more burned out you feel, the more depressed you feel, and, and it kind of creates a feedback loop. And so it can be very hard to break that, uh, which is tough, but then the good news can be that, is that if we change the, the cycle at any point, it can possibly lead to things going the other other way. So um, it, it could be worth looking at your mental health too and, and, and seeing if you want to see a therapist or work on that. But I get the sense that your life right now is, is so difficult or so draining that it's taking a lot out of you. And so it, you know, might be that's Maybe yeah. If I may, I want to add sure. something to that too. Like there is this was the general aspect. That's why I had that. I saw. I told you I want to ask you a question. The, even with the kids, everything is not normal. To be honest, I have some issues. The kids have some issues. I can tell you. And for instance, we have a big issue about their feeding, about their generally eating 
eating um, attitude, mm -hmm. eating habits. That's a big a struggle for me as a mother now. You cannot believe it. Every night I want to sleep, and then I have to think, God, what can I do? A kind of trick that I mix different things that I might eat, that stuff that they don't eat, because they generally, they don't enjoy eating. So mm -hmm. if I leave them from morning to night, they just want to play. So eating is a something like decoration for them <laughs> that has to be done. They have to eat something. But they're not like those kids that you put them on the, uh, on the baby seat and then, wow, they start enjoying the food. They want to try stuff. So for me, it's a struggle as a mother that every day I have to think, what should I put for them in the bag for the kindergarten? That I have variety. How can I decorate this stuff? What, should I, what kind of trick? I, so this is another struggle for me. And to be honest, it's not easy. You cannot believe how many stuff I have to read in the internet or search that, okay, which kind of method is there that I can try? So this is, mm. this is to be honest, another part of that pressure that I was talking about. Yeah. Well, and, and I know you mentioned before that your husband um, being so busy with work and his stress that it falls more on your shoulders and that's a lot so i mean does this seem like uh, understandably you're feeling drained because there's just so much pressure or stress on you that something has to change you know the way you're going it's not going to be good even uh, you know these things are complicated it could affect the kids in lots of ways including with things like the eating how stressed or pressured mm -hmm. you are or if you're rushing the feeding or things like that that could create certain anxieties related to eating and then you feel more stressed and, and another feedback loop starts to form where they feel that and affects how they you know relate to eating and, and all that so uh, i mean it does seem like you're you're the work and life and everything it's just too much and I don't know if your husband can also be more involved. I know you're saying he's busy and has his work, and I'm sure he does, but you might need more from him too as far as how, taking care of the kids and, and things around the house and things of that sort. But it does clearly seem like you are just uh, overworked as far as your overall day goes and, and that you know that something has to change. So I hope you'll take that seriously and not to take it as, you know, because in the last segment when we we're talking, you're saying looking at other families and it seems like they have so much time and it's so carefree and it's so easy, or, you know, you didn't use all of those words, but some of that feeling that it seems easier for them um, to not take it personally, like you should be able to handle all of this or, you know, it's something wrong with you. It could just be, it's too much. You know, when you're saying you slept two hours um, last night and that, you know, that's just not okay. No one can survive on that. You know, maybe you do it once in a blue moon, but that next day is going to be really, really difficult. But if you regularly are not getting enough sleep and you have all these things going on, it's it just, you know, it's not, it's not something about you. It's just something about it, it's too much to do. That's true. It's just a lot on the plate. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so it, it could be taking some things off the plate. It could be your husband helping you with some of the things that are on the collective plate as a family. Um, but I, I hope you'll take that very, very seriously. And again, not look at it as something about you, but something about the situation. And it's about you. You're the, the human who has to go through it, but it's not personal to you not being able to handle that or other people handle it so easily. Uh, you know, it's about the reality of that situation. We don't have a lot of time. I have to get off the air in about a minute or half or so. I so I, yeah. I, I mean, I'd yeah. want to, but I would want to, the reason why I say that though is because I was thinking, well, looking at you and your husband's relationship, um, looking at the balance of, of work, the home, 
housework and taking care of the kids because maybe you need more. So those are some factors that you also can look at because I, I also don't want you to leave with this expectation that, well, everything you're doing, you're supposed to be doing all of it. Maybe that's not, uh, that's part of the, the story too. You know, is there anything there just briefly that you think you would want more support from your husband and what, what happens at home? Um, you mean that I get, uh, yeah, I mean, during weekend, I would say it's realistic, yeah. Mm. Okay, but I mean, is it that you're, you know, does he, do you want him to do more than he does when it comes to the kids in the house? Well, for sure, but it's not possible, you know, I know that. Okay, yeah, I mean, I, and I, it's, I mean, it, it's, um, I, I can't know what that looks like and you know we have to to wrap up anyway but just some things to consider but i hope you'll take it it seems like obviously calling me means you're taking it seriously but take it seriously and making some kind of change because it seems like you're not you're not going to be able to withstand this and then it's going to hurt you and everyone around you so i hope you'll figure that out it's challenging but but good luck with it and it was nice talking to you Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I wish you a nice day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Nice talking. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. That brings us to the end of today's show. Big thank you to Patsis here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolakwi. Be kind and take risks. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.